Hi, this is Brian from Life Jutsu, bringing you today's content warning. This episode deals with the specific experience of grief and loss that became too common in 2020. The unique circumstances of a global pandemic have presented an intrusive disruption to how we experience the loss of a loved one, as well as the grieving process that follows. If this is not a good time to hear this kind of conversation, please join us next week for Episode 3 of Gundam The Origin, The Dawn Rebellion. Welcome, everyone, to Pen Pen Pals uh, Season Gundam, uh, Episode 2. And today we're going to be covering uh, Artesia's Sorrow. As always, I'm Alex, and I have my two co-hosts with me. This is Brian. Hey, and I'm Ben. And this week we have another fabulous new guest, uh, industry professional. Uh, Welcome, Melissa, to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Super excited to have you on. Before we get into the episode itself, uh, I'd like to ask our guests about uh, their prior experience with anime. Have you watched a lot of anime? Do you have any formative stuff that you watched when you were younger? Um, Or did you have any takes on this already? Um, Yeah, I got into anime not as a child so as an adult Mm -hmm. but i have watched a lot of anime movies and series not all in the giant robot category uh a lot in the (laughs) like slice of life category i would say yeah i really i really enjoy anime i know a little bit about gundam i've caught bits and pieces but i definitely don't have like the whole story in my head or anything this this is the first time i've sat down and actually watched it to like really understand it so very cool. Do you have any particular favorites or anything that was really formative to your uh, interpretations of the genre? I probably my favorite is Yuri on Ice. I Ooh. thought it was like really funny and also really sweet. And I also like the ones that are a little bit more out there. I'm thinking like Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid because it's just like this single woman ends up hiring a dragon to be her maid and like clean her house, uh, which is a weird <laughs> scenario, but Again, it's very amusing. That sounds amazing. You said Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid? Yeah. Did, did any yeah. of you guys ever read those like dealing with dragons books? No. It's like kind of like the opposite. It's this like princess that gets like kidnapped by a dragon, but actually kind of <laughs> like rescued by a dragon. And she becomes okay. this like dragon's living maid, basically. Yeah, that is like the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have season two of uh, Kobayashi's Dragon Maid coming this year. That was, I think, the big first release from uh, Kyo Annie since their fire. Or arson, I guess, is better to say. Cool. Uh, well, that was a huge downer. <laughs> the, the, the director was killed in that fire. Yeah, like, that's well, part of, like... <laughs> and now we have a big upper of an episode, Artesia's yeah. Sorrow. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> okay. So this episode starts off with a brief history of Munzo. At side three, also known as Munzo, Daikun founded an independent government and managed to convince the Earth Federation government to grant them conditional autonomy. However... Did it get mentioned, Melissa's background deals with robotics? No, please, I'm rushing ahead. (laughs) Thank you. What you do in real life is you advocate for the advancements of robotics and automated automated technologies? Yeah. So what does that mean? So I work for an association uh, whose goal is to advance robotics and autonomous technologies. Basically just see those come about because we feel that the world will be positively impacted 
by those technologies, although we're about to talk about giant fighting robots. So um, <laughs> maybe there's also a counter argument there. And I do want to say like my background is not technical. Like the only robot I ever built was a Lego robot. And I had to have a lot of help with that because I was like the programming was making my brain melt. But I work in the associations like that's my background. And I really enjoy that because I always say I can be involved in a part of an industry that I am not technically smart enough to be in. I, I really like that part of it, just sort of helping the technology become a reality, you know, things like driverless cars and how that will change, you know, folks who are blind and like their access to jobs and other things that maybe they didn't have access to issues on that side is what really got me into the, the industry. And, and so is it kind of like advocating for laws that allow those things to happen and kind mm -hmm. of like greater public understanding so people aren't afraid of things in ways where they just don't understand it or something. That's exactly it, Ben. And then we also try to help bring the industry together so that people who are usually in competition with each other can help see themselves as collaborators. And, you know, we're not all just working to get our robot out there. Like there's a greater good that the industry, if we come together and work together, can manifest. So that's another big part of it too. And, and do you guys, I mean, do you ever talk about like war robots and stuff like that? Or is that kind of like, uh, let's just like yeah, <laughs> stay away from that? Uh, it's a tough conversation because uh, many of our members do make robots that are used mm. by the military. And our group has actually been protested some in the past. We started in 1972. So our roots have oh, been in the military wow. because... In, 19, in the 1970s, that's the only game in town. Like, nobody else was doing robots. Only, you know, DARPA and, like... You're the DARPA chief, Donald Anderson, right? The think tanks from, from the military side of it. Oh, yeah. But your group is older than Gundam? That's yeah. crazy. Seven years. That's what Gundam um, is based on. <laughs> oh, I'm a space noid. I, I'm new type. I yeah. should have told you guys at the beginning. There is definitely a discussion to be had. But also, it's it's also a, a larger discussion than the technology because the, none of our like no no robot maker really was like you know what we need something new to put a gun on. But if the military <laughs> buys something, they're gonna put a gun on it. Yeah, <laughs> whatever it is. But like it's an interesting conversation. Because, I mean, and I think it is a positive like a conversation that needs to be had. But also, I mean, we don't we don't say like oh gosh you know we shouldn't have planes because the military took a plane and put a gun on it. Like oh, mm -hmm. but planes can also help move our society around and connect the world. And so the technology is a little, is neutral. It's just about how people use it. Mm -hmm. I just had this epiphany about our anime that we're reviewing. Tomino put the word gun in the name of all these different mechs. And you know, they're military contractors. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm, what I'm getting from all this is that you don't really have anything to do with the life-size Gundam that the Japanese has built. Uh, no. No, Officially, no. Okay, I can't. <laughs> okay. I can neither confirm nor deny. No. <laughs> we'll talk later off the air. <laughs> well, that's amazing. It sounds kind of like you work at the intersection of the application of the technology and the kind of uh, moral implications of it. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we get this uh, kind of extended intro that gives us a little background on the colony of Moonzo, right? And Moonzo is one of these colonies that inhabits one of the sides. A side is a grouping of colonies, right? And side three is specifically the side furthest from Earth distance wise. And also, I guess the distance breeds uh, a distance in ideology as well. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that that's where this new philosophy of uh, new types and space noid liberation, that's where it emerges, right? 
And it's even, I think it's the colony that's on the other side of the moon. So it's not even readily visible from Earth most of the time. Isn't one of uh, the colonies we address the dark colony? Oh, is that with inside three? Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Extra Banshee. What a weird name. (laughs) Uh, After the intro, we are introduced to... Uh, or, or an aging Artesia, right? In the last episode, she was like, I don't know, four or five maybe. And now she's, uh, I think they explicitly state she's 10. And she is already doing, I guess you could characterize it as volunteer work. Yeah, she's she's a young white savior, you know? Just... <laughs> yeah, there's a passage of time between the episodes, right? How much time has passed? I mean, Chimba has gone gray and has liver spots. They say they're about halfway through the hundred moon cycles. So what would that be? Like three and a half years? Yeah. (laughs) Who's good at math? (laughs) I'm looking at the robotics person. I've got a calculator. 43 divided by 12, right? So. Oh my God. uh, Three. About three and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Three three and a half. Yeah. Oh, I was right. exactly right. Yeah. See, I am smart. (laughs) I mean, just between our intro and like our first scene, I did think there was some confusion. I don't know who has been watching the subtitled versus the dub, but at least the dub, the narrator says something about Degwin taking advantage of a situation. And then we see Sasru get blown up. And I was like, that implies something that the episode did not imply. Anybody else get these weird? Vi- I just wrote in my notes, confusing narration. Uh, I did not catch that, but yes, it, it doesn't mesh with what we like the establishing shots and the intrigue that was established in the last episode. Yeah, it seemed like that to me. Like it's almost like they were reading the the script or whatever, and then mm-hmm. had the scenes, but maybe they weren't linked. But usually, when you <sighs> say like he took advantage of the situation, then you saw a car blow up. Like in my mind, I'm like. Wait, did he blow up the car? He blew up his own son? <laughs> I thought it was the sister. Yeah. Castilia. Yes. I'm going to try. Yeah. I meant to make a list, write down a list of all the names so I could reference them and I forgot to. So I'm just going to. I think that that interpretation makes sense to me that the, yeah. the idea was that he took advantage of the situation of the death of Daikun. Daikun. And that's what yeah. they're referring to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Well, what if Degwin just really didn't like his son? It's like, Now's my hey, chance. There's, a, there's been a political assassination. Let's let not let that go to waste. I mean, the uh, thing yeah. is, like, I've from what I've seen, it seems like he might be the kind of person that would do that. Like, I couldn't a hundred percent rule that out. Oh yeah, and we're gonna get a uh, subtle. Uh, nod to what Degwin may be doing or is capable of soon in the episode. Yeah, so back back in Spain. Okay, so in Spain, they've chosen, uh, made an interesting choice of setting. Uh, so they're not just in Spain, they're specifically in Andalusias, which is the southern uh, most region in Spain. And it's actually the largest autonomous region in Spain. So it's still subject to the national government of Spain but it has certain constitutional rights that it is allowed to govern itself. So it, it is allegorically similar to Munzo. And in their uh, the preamble to their statute of autonomy, they specifically list, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Blas Infanti, uh, one single person as the father of the Andalusian nation. And Blas Infante was also killed for his political beliefs by Franco's fascists during the Spanish Civil War. So just like Daikun, he didn't get to live to see the fruition of 
these ideas of autonomy, these ideas of independence. So Artesia, I guess they just need her to grow up and she's supposed to be a new type. So she's preternaturally good at certain things and she's learning like basic medicine already, right? And her presence at the refugee camp says to me, like, it's cool to see her. She's turning out to be a fine young woman, an amazing individual. But I think it says more that it looks like they're less than a mile away from the grand residence she's occupying, which literally is like a castle with suits of knight's armor just sitting around. Like, they have all of these resources, which could be going to the refugees. But the only thing that gets any of those resources to the refugees is Artesia's independent action. The, The scene didn't really jump out to me first time around, but the second time around, I was like, oh, wow, okay, so they live in a little mini castle, and uh, Mm -hmm. Don Diablo, like, cool guy, he's taken in these kids that have assassins after them, I guess, Uh, but he's privileged, right? Oh, yeah. Over tea, he's discussing, like, oh, yeah, we took in these kids, and uh, there's a political struggle that has nothing to do with me. I don't need to risk getting pulled into some space colony political struggle that has nothing to do with me. And then um, this is sort of outside the anime, but uh, part of the, the lore of our story is, like, the Earth is in this environmental crisis. It's dying, and actions were taken to create the space colonies, and... It's not the rich that go to the space colonies. They're the ones that own the space colonies. It's it's the poor. And in addition to that, anyone who has a disagreement with the Federation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what was interesting to me about that is like, so they took these drastic measures and I can't remember who was talking about it, but like the earth is still in decay. Like it didn't stop the environmental crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exporting population slowed it down, but didn't yeah. reverse the effects. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the the people that Artesia is helping out at the beginning of the episode, they're refugees, they say, from North Africa because the climate crisis has made it uninhabitable. Oh. Yeah, there's a small reference to that later on. What's his name? Makes some reference to how Earth steals all of space's resources and then oh, just uses it Kasval. to further I mean, no, 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 mess not up uh, Earth. The actual Char. Yeah. <laughs> the real Char, Asnable. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That reminded oh. me something you said, Brian. Um, it made me think when you said that they also, the Earth Federation government, anybody who disagreed with them got pushed to the space mm-hmm. places. Oh, colonies. The colonies, yeah. colonies, yeah. the colonies yes. Or space places. That's a technical term. Um, in your industry. That's <laughs> in the, what yes, they call that's it. What we Same call number them. of syllables. Yeah. Um, but it, it made me think about kind of a parallel to our country because I think a lot of people, because we tend to be so divided politically, there's sometimes, you know, I hear people saying like, well, that state should just secede. That state should just be their own government. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't that didn't really solve the problems for the Earth Federation. Like maybe they kind of regretted it later after they're like, hey, we put all the people that don't disagree with us in this one colony and now they're revolting against us or whatever. But I just think about that, that like that's not a path forward either. Like we have to figure out mm-hmm. how to get along and how to live with each other and not just be like, well, we'll just get rid of those people and then everything will be fine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. They need like a transformation of how we interact with each other, like a social revolution, if you will. And does it also ring of like deplatforming? I mean, there's something there. 
uh, uh, most people that go out to the colonies no longer have political influence. Mm. Yeah. It takes like a long time for Daikun's writings to get back to Earth, and he's the most influential thinker of the time. Right. I, I think I think kind of one analog might be sending people off to like exile in Siberia or something like oh. that, right? Like Russian <laughs> <Yeah>. dissidents. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's it. I think that makes more sense. Wow. The thing about deplatforming, like if we're talking about it in like our time, is that it, it's not being done by government. Mm. It's being done by private corporations. And, you know, if I'm a private corporation and I decide I don't want you to talk about kittens on my site, I mean, that could be a good or a bad move for my site. But if I just like it's my site so I can say, hey, nobody mm -hmm. can talk about kittens here because I'm a dog person. Get over it. I don't know. Right. I think it's a little bit different when you're talking about a government versus yeah. a private company. The reason why my mind went there, just another bit of background lore. There was something called the Bardo policy. Like when Daikun first started getting a popular, the Federation basically did this like blockade around Munzo mm. to control resources going in and out, but to specifically stop his work from reaching the other colonies and Earth. Mm -hmm. mm. But you bring up an excellent point, uh, Melissa, and one that's prevalent to our next thing that happens, mm. that there is this difference between essentially private censorship or, or government censorship. But we learn very quickly that Tibolo is not just some citizen. He's a Don or something, but he works for, Brian, you had it here. Is oh, it Yashima. The, the, yeah, the Yashima company. Right, so there's the Yashima company and its main rival is Anaheim Electronics. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, and these are two massive corporations. I think you said like one of them is listed as having 150 subsidiaries, which is like, you know, yeah. modern day, like Amazon, something like that. Oh, I, I had a real hard time researching this. Uh, so like there's, there's tons of like supplementary material you can get for Gundam, right? Like, so in addition to Anaheim, there's a bunch of other fictional defense contractors and it lists like all the components, like Anaheim makes the particle beam technology for the Gundam beam mm -hmm. rifle or the particle cannons on their cruisers or whatever, but there's virtually nothing on Yoshima. They're just as big and powerful as Anaheim, but nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> mm. um, so we check in with Jimba and Kosfal. Jimba is, has been, I guess, schooling Kosfal on Daikun's theories. Uh, it seems like he's been his like tutor. And that scene quickly degenerates because Artesia comes in, is not feeling well. Kosfal goes to uh, look after her. And Tibolo comes to talk to Jimba. Jimba has just had a meeting with Anaheim Electronics, which uh, uh, he did not clear with Tibolo, whose house they are staying at, and is the employer that's uh, a rival to Tibolo's employer. I mean, that's more than awkward, right? Right. <laughs> um, that's like a betrayal, it would seem yeah. like, at least in the private professional world. Uh, Jimba goes off on this rant about uh, how they're in a great political position to take back power from the zombies. And Tibolo snaps him out of this, I don't know, rant that he's going on by saying, they're military contractors. They don't care who's in power. The only thing they can guarantee is that they'd be making money off of you. I was struck in that scene well, kind of the juxtaposition of the scenes. You know, Jimba's teaching Casval and like seems to be in kind of like a fatherly grandfatherly or at least tutor role mm -hmm. but then when he's talking to um 
Tiablo, it seems very much like he doesn't really have a lot of care for the children. Like Tiablo, you get mm-hmm. the sense that he does really care for the children, even though they aren't his, and he's like got this bond. Edouard and Sela are my children. But it just seems like Jimba sees them as like a piece of the puzzle, like a pawn that he can move around and like leverage. Yeah. We might want to save this for like a spoiler section. Uh, like Tiablo turns out to be right, not just about Anaheim's exploitation of his fixation, Jimba's fixation, but uh, we, we see later that the stuff that Anaheim produces does not compete with the Zaku's. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Artesia's sick, right? Yeah. So my question is, is she really sick? And I don't mean is she faking it? She's she's going to be a new type or she's becoming a new type. And it's not like the X-Men, you know, like mutants genes activate at puberty because it's a consciousness evolution, not like a physical thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there is a mind body connection. And like I was just wondering, like we're seeing her. She's Mm -hmm. just not well. Right. And is like is her new type abilities. Are they starting to develop? And is is exhausting or fatiguing or something? Or I I thought maybe where you're going is that um, her mother is sick. And so this is some sort of like connection. Oh, man, that's better. (laughs) Well, and actually now I'm like not sure because that's, I guess, more when they're up on the colony. So I don't know if the time exactly lines up. But but one thing I noticed, she reveals that she's sick right after they talk about how Jimba is like, surely your father was like poisoned by like the Zabi family. Like mm-hmm. that's like super obvious. And then she's like, oh, like I'm like sick. And that made me wonder if their family has some sort of like heart condition or something like mm-hmm. that, that she got from her father and that maybe the Zabi family didn't actually poison him. It was just this horrible coincidence. I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that reminded me of like why I had the original thought because of the storytelling style. We see the scene of uh, Artesia at the pool. She's not feeling well, but the narration of Jimba, he's talking about the emergence of the new types. Why are we seeing her not feeling good as we hear mm. Jimba talking about the emergence of new types? Yeah, um, there's a lot of that visual audio juxtaposition of like two seemingly unrelated things that give you clues to what the writer is trying to convey to you subtly, right? So maybe Degwin really didn't like <laughs> Sasro. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> That's in the writing, man. um, (laughs) Yeah, those are really fascinating readings. Uh, Real quick, the only thing that I had thought is they talk about Sahara fever, which Mm -hmm. is not a real thing. And so what I read into that was the conditions in these refugee camps, the sanitation and the medical supplies they have and the close quarters that everyone has to maintain could be uh, breeding new diseases. And so the inability or the unwillingness of the rich to continue to help the poor ends up hurting the rich as well. Mm. And Artesia doesn't wash her hands. She just goes swimming in the pool. (laughs) (laughs) She's just infected everyone. (laughs) Yeah, there was like that missing element of soap. That's the difference between a shower and a pool. Yeah, and then I guess next we get kind of um, this attack in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Artesia is writing a letter to her mother, uh, mentioning that it's the 43rd moon. So yeah, it's been about three and a half years. I guess it, she feels worse. It goes bedridden. Kosfal stays with her through the night. And then he notices that the dogs stop barking, right? Mm. I, I think the implication was that the dogs were killed. Just going back to Artesia, she's writing her mother and says that she was talking about Don Tiablo, right? And that she was going to say she reminds 
her of her father. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She says uh, that that line struck me too. Uh, thank you. I, I missed it. I uh, made a note about it. She says, Tiablo has gotten bigger too, which is funny, right? It means like yeah. he's gotten fatter. <laughs> and he reminds me of blank. And I was like, who? Like her father? Maybe Ramba? Like, because he's like an uncle? Like, um, I, I wasn't sure either. But you're yeah. right. It's probably Daiku. It's probably Zeon. Yeah. So that's kind of gets back to what you were saying, Melissa. Like, Tiablo. Like he does care about the children. Like they're mm-hmm. they've built that bond, the attachment. Yeah. They become his reason for living, right? Mm-hmm. Because as we see, except for being a professional, some sort of executive in this company, he has nothing else. He has no wife, he has no friends, he has only like professional acquaintances. Okay, so there's this attack on the complex. Uh we had talked in the previous episode how Jimba kind of in certain ways represents uh, Leon Trotsky. And there were some some more similarities. Uh, there are several attempts on Trotsky's life uh, while he was in exile in Mexico. And in those attempts, several people around him, bodyguards, and I think even one of his family members, maybe a son or nephew, they uh, were shot. But Trotsky himself, the attempt that actually took his life uh, was done by someone who or got in close to him and then killed him with an ice axe. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just oh, buried it in his skull. Yeah. There's a modern breach of a compound. But the thing that actually kills Jimba is this up close and personal, a knight in armor. And I love this symbolism, this imagery, because the the knight is like a precursor to the suits that we're going to start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Feels, it feels a little contrived though, right? It like, it was weird for sure. It was right? weird. Very weird. In the same way that the tower in the middle of the lake that Astraya is confined to in the first episode, it has this very Rapunzel thing. And the attack even happens in a tower in the castle again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, you're right. It is a little contrived. When I first saw this, I was just like, what the hell is going on? Uh, so, I, you know, I got online to see what other people's opinions were. And there's just weird, wild speculation the camera does show us these suits of armor and I thought, okay, maybe an assassin infiltrated the house mm-hmm. and is just hiding out in this suit of armor. With like the Scooby-Doo eyes? <laughs> <laughs> sure, man. Yeah. And maybe it was like someone they knew, right? That was, you know, paid off. And that's why mm. this person kept the armor on, like mm. kept his face covered. But mm. um, I did think about just like, it's it's kind of like the shape of things to come for, there's a weird noise, sorry. Casval slash Char, like he's going to be fighting these big humanoid metal things. You know, I guess it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the David and Goliath story. Like before he faced Goliath, he fought bears and lions. And But it, it's, I don't know, it, it doesn't exactly track because he's already blown up gun tanks. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was also expecting there to be some like reveal of like the face because of like the mask being there. And I kind of wondered if it was going to be... Um the red haired woman, I forget her name. Oh, but I was like, she was like yeah. riding around on a horse last episode. Yeah. So I can see, kind yeah. of like imagine her being this like knight figure. Yeah. And I guess we learned that it is her goons that were sent to assassinate them. Yeah. Maybe it is a little bit in her style or yeah. something like that. You know, the, the, the assassin never speaks and it seemed like maybe this was, maybe a simple-minded but very physically powerful person that they exploited. Oh, making him very much like Goliath. Yeah. 
up. So they kind of finish that mm-hmm. climactic battle where you have both this knight chasing after them. Mm-hmm. You have Artesia is kind of like sick and like barely holding it together. And then the railing and stuff starts falling apart. But they manage to, to survive in this mm-hmm. by climbing up onto this little windowsill. Um, and then we just have one more scene in Act one and that's where Tibolo in the hospital he's visited by Shu Yashima and Mirai Yashima um, Shu Yashima is the owner of the company he works for right the closest thing to a friend that Tibolo has mm-hmm. um, and Mirai is kind of an easter egg to Gundam fans because yeah. we know that uh, Mirai will become a very important character in the original series. She becomes the pilot of the main ship, the carrier white base, they call mm-hmm. it. This is so stupid. I get emo- I get emotional at this scene. <laughs> and if you're not a Gundam fan, it does not matter one single bit. Oh, that's funny. I get angry at this scene. Oh, really? We're supposed to be like, oh, he's showing compassion. And, and, and he realizes this compassion through his daughter. You know, she dabs the tear away from his eye. And they're like, it's going to be okay. But what we see in this scene is that Shu Yashima is so wealthy that he owns a colony. Oh, yeah. He's like, oh, you can go stay on my Texas colony. And you're like, what is that? And he's like, oh, (laughs) and we have this today. Like, I can't remember if it's one of the Koch brothers or some other billionaire has a ghost town only they are allowed to go to, right? And the only reason to own it is it's basically an amusement park just for them, a private facility. Sure, you're not just thinking of the plot of Westworld. So I found that to be really disturbing that a private individual could own, it would be like owning a state, right? Mm. That's how big these colonies are. Oh, yeah. How many people they can house and the, the economic implications they have. And so they're both rich people. So they show class solidarity. They show compassion, but only for other rich people. Yeah, I, I kind of misinterpreted it when I was first watching it. I thought this guy was like giving like a veiled threat like you should move to this like colony because (laughs) that will show submission. Like I thought he was like a a messenger for the zombies. Yeah. For the zombie family. I mean, I can comment on that a little bit again, going outside the anime, this is into the manga and the book, but like the zombie, the Xeon, they've got a lot of power among the colonies. Like there's Federation groups that are stationed out there and they just try to keep the peace. Mm -hmm. They're not really out there with, their boots on the neck of the Zabi or the Zeon. Mm-hmm. And here's a guy that can buy and sell colonies, but he can't prevent the Zabi assassins from getting into their houses, right? Mm-hmm. And killing everybody. So, I mean, it's maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Well, very <laughs> like you've noted in previous episodes, the double talk that happens in uh, Japanese Imperial court. Mm. And that may be it, right? On one hand, it's compassion. And on the other, it's showing humility to the zombies. And yeah. there's no reason it can't be both. But just on uh, the sentimental stick here, I really like Mirai. <laughs> Noah Bright, like later we'll see who commands the white base that the Gundam is on, is uh, not always in control. And uh, Mirai helps people like avert crisis because of some stupid guy that's in charge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a little language note. I mean, so so Mirai, I think they refer to it, at least in the sub, how that's like, you know, the Japanese word for the future. Oh. But something that's interesting is there's kind of two words for the future. 
So they split up the concept. So there's Mirai, which is like the far future, kind of like the science fiction future. And then there's like Shorai, which is the term for like your personal future. Oh, that makes me like her even more. (laughs) So act two, we go back to Moonzo at side three. And Girin is coding fascist again. I assume he's just given a speech or something, but he's addressing the crowd and oh waving God. in this very Il Duce way. Yeah. It's quick scene. Uh, Kaecilia comes up behind him. He asks if Kaecilia has taken care of the thing. And she's like, yeah, of course I did send those people. And Girin is not upset that she sent assassins, but that the assassins failed to kill the Daikun children. So why did he even ask if he already knew? <laughs> he only wants to admonish her. It's performative, yeah. right? I don't know. His character looks a lot like uh, the Trump kids. So like every time <laughs> he talks, I know they didn't mean to do that, but like the hair, I don't know. That's like all I'm seeing when I see him. Yeah, his hair looks exactly like Eric Trump. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, this is just pure science fiction though, right? Like we've never seen a world leader who just like loves to absorb the cheering crowds. Or, <laughs> oh no. Or loves to uh, admonish people. When they didn't actually do any, I mean, he didn't do anything. These assassins don't do anything because they don't think he has them. Yeah. So I I did want to take this opportunity to talk about Kaecilia a little bit. So when I was talking about getting online to research that night we were talking about, uh, I I found a lot of big opinions about Kaecilia. And it was something that happened in episode one, but didn't come up for us. I think it's because we're mature adults. Uh, it's, It's when... Kaecilia gets woken in the middle of the night by the unrest on the streets and walks to the window naked, Mm -hmm. throws Mm -hmm. the curtain open. Man, that upset a lot of people. Uh, Like to me, it was just like telling me who this character was. Yeah, it's fantastic. She's actually desexualized. Yeah, she walks very square and just marches, right? Like she doesn't have nipples in the shot. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a censorship thing, maybe. I, I know with Castlevania Symphony of the Night. What is a man? There were some characters kind of like half naked nymph-like creatures or something. In the American version, they just like airbrush the nipples off and then they're like, this is like good enough. (laughs) And so I don't know, at least that is like sometimes like a censorship tool. Oh, okay, cool. Americans definitely have a problem with nipples. As somebody who has brushed that in public, like people get real weird about it. Even if you're doing something that's like, this is not a sexual act. This is just like, I need to feed my kid. I thought her sleeping naked was a cool characterization. I hadn't put much thought into like why the writers decided to do that. Oh, yeah. I thought it was just a show that like, like she's kind of a boss bitch. Oh. That she's bucking gender norms, you know? She's going to act in the way that she wants to act according to her own compass. Yeah. Maybe she's got a little of a Lady Godiva thing going on. I don't know. Oh. Well, I, I don't know what that means. And she rode around on a horse naked. I was just oh, yeah. too weird. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I thought it was like a privilege thing. I mean, I do not sleep naked because I got kids and who knows what can happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they pretty quickly go downstairs to meet Garma and Degwin because they're going to be part of, I guess, a convoy. They're going somewhere to some state event. Not really important, but... What I missed it the first two times I watched it, but this time I was like, there's something about this scene. Degwin shows up with Garma and asks where Dozel is. They say, oh, he had to take care of something important. Like, he just can't be here, but whatever, it doesn't really matter. And Degwin says, okay, well, Garma, you ride with me. 
which like should have been not meant anything, right? Like, of course, yeah, that's his son, their father and son. Like, what does that matter? But when he says this and Garmin's like, yeah, of course, there's a shot that focuses on Girin and Kaecilia and share this look like, oh, is that happening? Like, that's what I got from it. So I think there may be a history of sexual abuse between Degwin and his children. And that's continuing. Like, we'll get some other stuff in, I think, later episodes that maybe hints at it. Yeah. But episode four. Definitely. Yeah, just that look that Garrett and Kaecilia share, like, even though they're monsters themselves, like, it put a shiver down my spine. This episode has a lot of these vague scenes that you can read into, right? Like, th- I, I made a note with this as well. But I had a different read, but what you're saying does make a lot of sense. But I was I was thinking about when Kaecilia blew up Sasaro. And I was thinking when Sasaro was killed, there was like this big public event. And now we have this other big public event. And all of a sudden there's a last minute change. And now Garma is getting into Degwin's vehicle. Oh. And I felt like Kaecilia and Gerwin, who are never aligned, all of a sudden look at each other nervously like, uh... I thought that, I thought they were going to kill Garma. That oh, he, he really? Was, he was the next sibling to go. Why? He's like harmless. Oh, he is the heir. Oh, because of the current wife. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah, uh, Lysia was Degwin's wife who gave birth to Garma and died in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the details are vague, but it seems like Garma is Degwin's true heir and the other siblings are the children of mistresses. Mm-hmm. Oh. But it creates this weird tension. But then like mm-hmm. Dozel, of course, who's non-political, he doesn't care. Garma's just Garma to him. Yeah, Garma's his brother. He's yeah. the only one who treats them like actual family members. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, what you're saying, like, that makes sense. I, I can see that. And you were talking earlier about the Federation has uh, military supremacy, right? And they have people stationed not only like outside of Munzo, but on Munzo, right? As a de facto police force. But they don't want to start a war. They they are afraid of the influence that Munzo actually has. And so we see that characterized in this next scene. We go back to uh, the Club Eden. Mm-hmm. At Club Eden, Haman is singing again, and the song is being sung specifically to Ramba, right? She's supposed to be entertaining this room, but she really only has eyes for him, and she's really only singing to him. Uh, And then we get these asshole federation, like we've seen this in a million movies, like drunk soldiers who make asses of themselves because they're like, ah, I don't like this music. I don't want to, I'd rather do karaoke, which... Haman owns that stage and this intrusion is too much for Ramba to bear. Like this is an insult. And so he ends up single handedly, well not single handedly, but all by himself beating up an entire squad of admittedly drunken soldiers. And, and destroying like all the booze, but he oh does have the bartender's permission. So. What a shame. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of swing kids in an old movie called Mephisto, but it's like club Eden is not a Federation bar. Mm -hmm. like they were the outsiders those federation soldiers and it's just Mm -hmm. i don't know how historical it is but at least in historical fiction it comes in again and again like the occupying force uh intruding on like local spaces 
Mm. Oh, definitely. And the fight shows us that Ramba has, aside from Haman, who he maybe doesn't put enough attention towards, like they're they're definitely together. Um, he seems like he's depressed down in the dumps, like he has nothing to live for. I guess they don't explicitly state it, but he's working through the news that his father was just assassinated, right? Mm-hmm. It, it perfectly leads us into Dozel showing up and Dozel telling us, hey, I have a favor to ask of you. And what's the favor? Well, it's to fight. It's what Ramba does best, right? Uh, it's just in a new context. He wants to give Ramba another reason to live. He's part of the military. He's part of this awful family, but he he actually has these moments of compassion. Like, I don't think he comes to Ramba because he wants to use Ramba. He has plenty of pilots, of, of fighters at his disposal, but he respects Ramba. Mm-hmm. He probably knows that Jimba was just assassinated and he comes to Ramba to offer him an olive branch, offer him like, he even says in, I think the first episode, uh, if we weren't at odds, I would want Ramba serving under my command. Yeah. Yeah, I heard this expression uh, last year, the war is not the warrior. Because mm. I guess I'd had conflicted feelings because, you know, I'm anti-war, uh, but just being in DC metro area, it's easy to be friends with a lot of people that are either veterans or in the military or associated with the military somehow. Like people I like, friends, right? And sometimes family. I don't know how to feel about Dozel, uh, but I do like Raul. And I guess just that idea makes it more comfortable, I guess. I mean, I guess like Dozel was in a car that his own family <laughs> blew up and right <laughs> killed one of his siblings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, he, he might not be like the most aligned with the rest of them or something mm-hmm. like that, or, or feel that much of an allegiance to the rest of them. Yeah. I think like Rawl and Dozel's relationship is one of the things that makes this like a really interesting show. Cause like at least Gundam origin, again, I don't have a lot of experience with the whole series, but mm-hmm. it really resists the good guy, bad guy narrative because everybody's so complicated and like, you know, I originally wrote down, like, why would Rawl agree to help Dozel if he knows the zombies just killed his dad? And I think it's just because of this, like, unique relationship that him and Dozel have. And that's kind of defined the politics uh, that are around them and the context that's around them. And they're, like, able to have that tenuous relationship. I just think it's really interesting because if you look at both those people, it's hard to pick, like, which one's the good guy and which one's, like, the bad guy. Yeah, you hit it on the head. Like, that is, if I were to characterize what I think Gundam is about, it's that. Yeah. Why we're spending all of our time with the Zobbies and the Zeon, like, who are de facto the bad guys in the original series and throughout the universal century zeon is characterized as the bad guys right Mm -hmm. even though we see over and over oh federation soldiers get drunk and make asses of themselves the federation oppresses people yeah that's brilliant my my kind of view coming to this from the outside is i feel like they still are coded as the bad guys like at this point i have very little sense of what the federation even is you know I, I think we have like this speech from char whatever right and, and kind of like this idea that they're they're at least like mismanaging everything if not evil but but it still feels like kind of clearly artesia and um you know the zeon family they're the good guys <laughs> and the zabi are the 
the bad guys as of like the way the narrative has gone gone up until this point anyway. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I definitely see that. I feel like my opinion of um Caswell gets worse with each episode. And I don't <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. Definitely anything. vindictive. Yeah. <laughs> he just does things later on that I you know, you can't reconcile with a good guy doesn't do those things. Yeah. Even if it brings him closer to his goal, that's still not okay. Yes. My opinion of Ramba Rao gets more confused with every episode. His father just died, so he's the head of House Rao. He could leave Minzo, right? Like he was able to arrange at least a secret exodus with his dad and those kids before, but he stays. And then just while you guys were talking about this, I thought, well, he had this confrontation with Kaecilia, who's very dangerous, but he was just able to handle that situation. Maybe he doesn't really have that much to worry about. Like maybe he doesn't need to flee Munzo. Mm-hmm. And so Ramba is taken or he agrees to accompany Dozel to a secret facility and a nearby colony uh, called Extra Banchi or the Dark Colony. Seems kind of ominous. Well, we meet for the first time another kind of Easter egg. Three pilots, uh, Gaia, Mash and Ortega, who will be kind of fan favorite bad guy aces. And then we see, we get the <laughs> unveiling of the Proto-Zaku. Mobile worker, zero one. You, you touched on this earlier, uh, uh, Melissa. It's a wonderful example of the way the technology starts. It's not even a weapon. It's a worker unit, right? And it has the ability to build stuff or uh, it has a big shield. It could protect things, but what it's being geared towards and what the people in charge of the project are hoping for is to turn it into the next weapon. Did you feel like this scene was realistic or too far out into fantasy? Um, I mean, I'm pretty good at suspending disbelief when I watch. I mean, these are like space colonies. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to get caught up on that, then I have a lot of other things that I need to get caught up on, like, mm-hmm. or, you know, stuck on as well. I mean, what was realistic is that like when you are testing a lot of robots, you are testing them for certain things. So like if you notice like they all have like the wires coming off of them because they're probably feeding power into them instead of having power be on the robot itself. So a lot of times if you're testing like mobility or whatever, you just hook them up to a power source because you're not testing power. So you kind of test one system Uh, at a time. Okay. So that's like, I think why they were connected because it was like, we're just trying to see how well they can punch each other in the face or shoot each other or like, you know, whatever, (laughs) but we're not trying to figure out the power right now. So we're just going to like hook it up to the external power source. Focus on one thing at a time for each test. Right. Yeah. Because the Zamofsky thing doesn't come up till later. That that's what deals with like the power supply. issues. That's in another episode. Oh my God. And that's what uh, Girin comes to shut them down over, over the power supply issues. That happens a lot in real life too. Like a lot of the first drones were tethered and there's still even some companies that make tethered drones because a real problem with like small quadcopters is they don't have a very long flight time. Right. Um, so a lot of people developed basically things with a really, really, really long power cord. You know, if you're just looking for situational awareness, you just want to get it up there and like look around, then that works. But if you want to like inspect a power line, that's not going to work because you're not going to have that long of a line. Wow. I think power is always an issue. Can I share some geek trivia 
from from the Gundam novel. Sure. Uh, so because of Zamoski particles in space, like radar and all this kind of stuff, wireless communication doesn't work. And uh, some of these desperate attempts that the Federation and the Xeon do is they have huge, like tethered wires on some missiles because that's the only way they can guide missiles. Because usually it's just point and shoot rockets. <laughs> so some of them have these wires where someone on the base, on the cruiser can guide the missile. Which is a real thing that still exists today, tow missiles. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wire guided missiles. That seems so impractical. I mean, you can guide a missile that way. <laughs> oh, just one more thing. I want to say, Brian, that's, that's a lot like um, unmanned underwater vehicles. UUVs are almost all still tethered. What? Oh, because the water messes with the like signals you need to send to something. So if you have a water, <laughs> an underwater vessel, it either has to be tethered if you want to control it, or it has to be completely autonomous where it can sense where wow. it needs to go and figure it out for itself. Gosh, oh my gosh. gosh. That's, that makes absolute sense though, because yeah. uh, those signals don't travel through water the same way they travel through air. Yeah. That's brilliant. It's just like Zimowski particles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever those are. Yeah. Uh, those are no, real. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I think it's Minovsky particles, right? Wait, oh, did I say it wrong? M-I-N-O-V-S-K-Y. Is that Russian? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Russian scientist, baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the test goes quite well, and it shows us kind of a preface to how mobile suits will change warfare in that the big guns that are on this gun tank are, are similar to the big guns on capital ships mm. can get in close enough. They can't target you. It won't be able mm. to hit the target. So then we go back to uh, Moonzo. Oh no, I'm sorry. First we go to a terminal, right? Yeah. So this scene always gets me. So the juxtaposition, uh, we start at the, the, I don't know if it's air or space terminal or both, but uh, you know, Easter egg for the fans. Uh, we get our first uh, reveal of Amuro Ray, who's, the little kid who's chasing after his toy that's going rogue. Yeah, so spoiler, he <laughs> ends up being the pilot of the Gundam. And uh, his dad, Tem Ray, is there and he's annoyed and like, I shouldn't have bought you that damn toy. His dad's a jerk. Yeah. And then you go from that to Astrea and she's getting visited by Crowley Haman. And this is the last time we see Astrea. And her last wish is just to have one more day with her kids. You know, it's the exact opposite of Tam Ray. And she's not going to get it. It's just the saddest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's really heartbreaking. Tam is physically close to his son, but emotionally, mentally somewhere else. He's completely distant, right? Uh, and so there's an inversion of those distances between these two parents. Yeah. Artesia, or are going by Sela now, mm -hmm. uh, she sees Amaro uh, and remarks to Tibolo that there was some kid who lost track of his toy. Yeah. And then in the scene with Astrea, uh, they reminisce a little bit about the old days. It's actually like the only uh, happy thing they talk about. Um, and we get a flashback of Astraya looking very much like Haman singing on the Club Eden stage. Mm hmm. And there's another shot of the bar and there's four characters. There's a bartender we'd never seen before, but the waiter is the current bartender that we're used to, Clamp. It's going to be Clamp this, Clamp that, bada Clamp, bada Clamp. Who's very nice to Ramba, right? And then we get a soldier on the right part of the frame who I think is a young Ramba. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, he just doesn't have his mustache mm -hmm. yet. And then there's this short 
woman in one of the bar seats who's blonde and has a uh, heavy teal uh, eyeshadow and is wearing the same earrings that Haman wears. So I wasn't sure, but I thought maybe that's actually a young Haman. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, part of my emotional reaction to the scene is probably because of all the other stuff that I already know about the story, but you know, like that toy, the harrow that Tem buys for Amuro, that's going to be Amuro's social interaction because Tem comes home and then locks himself in the office. Mm -hmm. He does not give a crap about his kid, cannot get away fast enough, is almost like psyched about this new program that he's, that they're on their way to on side seven. That's going to take even more time away uh, from him and his son I'm trying to remember what it's called, but in the last year, there is this like social interaction robot that got released. Have you guys seen this? No. It's this little like kind of cartoony animated little thing. And it's supposed to help your kid with their like social and emotional development. And like, I'm sure they like rush to release this like during the pandemic, but it gives them like assignments where it like asks them about their feelings and like tells them to like have a conversation with a friend about their feelings. So how long yeah. before nanny robots p- replace mothers? Sleep, little dumpling. I have replaced your mother. Do you, do you have a timeline on that, Melissa? I don't. Uh, don't have it right here, but <laughs> they've used robots in social situations. And like, honestly, that's like more prevalent in places like Japan. There's not a lot of, of that happening on the, the American side of the industry, but I know I've seen robots before that helped kids, especially like kids that struggle with social interaction. Like if you think of kids that are autistic or on the spectrum, like helping them kind of practice in a really, really safe environment because a robot's not going to judge them or not want to play with them or anything. Right. And then they have robots that uh, I've seen one that's like a seal for older folks that they use in nursing homes, kind of like in the like a therapy dog, but it's a robot. Hmm. I just looked up the robot I was talking about is called Moxie. I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. He's got Moxie. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a robot that helps teach parents how to like be more engaged with their kids? No. No. (laughs) There's no money in that. (laughs) That's actually just called uh, therapy. (laughs) So we already have a whole industry. Uh, We got to automate that. (laughs) One more scene uh, before we move on. Oh, wait. On that last scene, when the people came in to give her her air quotes medicine, like I I liked what Ben said about like Daikun being poisoned was actually not true. And that's just something Jimba believed, but didn't have proof about. But Mm. because that was like in my head, I was like, are they poisoning her too? Like, I don't know. I just thought that like she needs her medicine was like a little ominous from people who keep her locked up in a tower. It reminded me of Flowers in the Attic. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're so right. Yeah. And she looked bad. She did look bad. Yeah. It, it, it could just be the, the animation itself or the proportions of things, but the tray that the maid is bringing in, there is an identical vial or not vial, jar of that medicine on the nightstand yeah. next to Astraya. And it is not empty. So it, it, it is like they're forcing her to take this stuff. I don't know if that's actually real, but I thought, I thought, is that poison? It probably is. And it just makes everything more tragic. So thank you. <laughs> Did we address like, why was she still locked in the tower even after Lady Rosalucia died? Oh, I thought it had something to do with the zombies. Dozel was able to get Haman a visit. Right. Haman says Dozel pulled some strings for me. So like, I thought 
that the zombies were keeping her locked up. That has to be it. So we get one more scene with uh, Ramba piloting a blue uh, mobile worker. The The fight itself is kind of fun, but the characterization there is that not all pilots are the same. Some of them have, I don't know, some semblance of honor or uh, are goal oriented and others are maybe bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. You know, people get into the military for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And then we have act three, uh, mm-hmm. where we first get to see Texas Colony. Uh, Artesia and Kosfal and uh, Tibolo have returned to not side three. This time they're at side five, but that means they're within like the, I guess, political reach of Munzo, and thus they're closer to threats from the Zabi. Yeah, so this is a little confusing. This is just a technical detail. Anyway, Loom is where... Uh... The Texas colony is. Texas res- colony. Oh, yeah. okay. So side five is known as Loom. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that is a little confusing. That makes sense though. Uh, Artesia rides this fat little exasperated <laughs> pony. Mm-hmm. And she is uh, herself exasperated because uh, Kasval, or as he's, she's very vehement that he's Edward now, is preternaturally good at with his horse. And he keeps speeding ahead of her, getting a, out of her line of vision. And we get this, you know, it's like something out of Shakespeare where a twin shows up and the main character mistakes them for the person they know, right? So Artesia meets Char Osnabal for the first time. And they he looks identical to Kosval, except they have inverted complementary colors. So Kosval has blue eyes, whereas Char has kind of red-brown eyes. Do you want to talk about like the weird expression that Artesia has when when these two guys meet? It's a it's a strange reaction, right? There's this tension. And the music too is real like something bad's gonna happen. <laughs> they high five each other like this Mentos commercial. Hi, I'm Edouard Moss. <laughs> And I'm Shar Osnabal. And then also Narcisa goes, ah! <laughs> um, I have a theory. Oh. So if you met a doppelganger for yourself, at least subconsciously, it's a threat to your identity. Because like, you're not unique. There's someone else that looks just like you. Sure. And maybe Artesia just intuits that and be like, oh my God, these two look exactly alike. They're not going to be best buds. That's going to be weird and awkward. And... Just me reading into this. Uh, I think maybe Artesia knows that there's something dark in her brother that's emerging. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's just not going to have any of that shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, the tension is resolved and Artesia swoons. I, I, no, I, I feel like that makes sense to me. I, I think in this scene too, I guess we get foreshadowing that he's going to leave her behind, right? Mm-hmm. It's her repeatedly calling for him, him kind of ignoring her. And then back to a very similar scene at the end of this act. Yeah, and we uh, we have this one moment of joy as the, these doppelgangers don't want to kill each other. It's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> that does not last, though, because it goes to Artesia writing a letter, one of many letters that we learn are never sent to Astraya. And in the middle of her writing the letter, this is when Kosfal receives the note from Haman, right? Um, and we get Artesia, uh, while she's reading it, we get the voiceover of Haman. You may want to brace yourself for what you're about to read, but your mother has died. 
again, in, in the first episode, we talked about the punishment of Daikun versus the punishment of Astraya. It's not really equal. It characterizes the still present sexism within this culture, even, even if it's just like, I don't know, narrative sexism. But uh, again, Daikun was honored, revered when he died, right? There's a state funeral, his children attended, whereas because they're living in hiding under assumed names, uh, they don't even get their mother's body. The grave just says like mother of Edward and Sela, um, which is not their real names. And it cannot have her name as someone uh, mentions because who knows who might come across it and put two and two together. And then they will, Casval and Artesia would be in danger again. And it's kind of the, it's not her decision, obviously. She didn't say like, give me a headstone that doesn't have my name on it, but even in her dying, she still protects her children, which mm-hmm. I found very moving. Oh, yeah. I did write, like, at the scene, Estrella's last last wish, I wrote, this is the saddest ever. <laughs> yeah. And then under, yeah. like, <laughs> and then when we get to, like, the empty grave part, I was like, never mind. This is more sad. Like, <laughs> I mean, Estrella dying was obviously really sad and that she couldn't be with her children. And I definitely, like, that, like, as a mother, like, connected with that. But I also saw that, like, she's living in a tower that she can't leave with people who hate her. Like, maybe death was a little bit of a release for her that she was now at least free from that. Yeah. Whereas this just feels like a burden that these children are going to have to carry for their whole lives. It doesn't release them from anything. It kind of destroys all of Artesia's hope. She's writing a letter all the time. That's what's keeping her together. And that line just gets cut. And like, what does she have now? Yeah. yeah. And, and when she finds out, she knocks over the, the ink on her table and we get this shot of the ink running kind of like blood. But you also have mm-hmm. kind of this image of, you know, that's going to leave a, a stain on that table. Right. This is a, a permanent thing that affects her. And, and I think the very next scene you see her riding on her horse and she's not this sweet kid anymore. She's got a, a lot more aggression in her face or something oh yeah, yeah. so it's, yeah. it's a symbol of you know running so maybe this is why this really this scene also got to me i mean it sucks when someone you love dies it sucks worse telling another person you love when someone you love has died and then whoever went through that in the last year during our pandemic it sucks not being able to have like the grieving ceremonies that you need to let go and remember for anyone listening, if that's what you've gone through, uh, you're not crazy. It's just, uh, I don't know what the word is. It feels like a violation. You feel stuck. Mm. I mean, I will share, like, my grandmother died at the end of March last year. And we could not have, we had a funeral, but, like, four people went. And my cousin Zoomed us in because that's the best we could do. And, like, I haven't gotten together with that family because it just hasn't been safe to yet. But it, like, short circuits that grief process it's almost like you have to relive it over and over because you didn't have those rituals that tell you like, okay, this person's gone. And this is the process of how we're going to move through the grief. I wake up sometimes and then remember like, oh yeah, grandma died. But like, it doesn't even feel real yet because I've just been in my house for the whole year since it happened. Very hard. And it does help knowing that we're not alone in it, but it also doesn't because it still sucks. Yeah, my experience with that is again, like, forgetting and not being conscious of of what's what's happened until you're just in casual conversation and maybe you remember a humorous anecdote 
you freeze and like, well, I, I'm not going to say that out loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, the conversation with your buddies, it just keeps going, but then you're in your own private hell or whatever. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. There are years between these scenes, right? But uh, uh, from our perspective, they're just going through trauma after trauma after trauma. And uh, she comes to meet Cosfall at like a hotel bar, right? Basically, it's like it's like an old timey saloon because everything at Texas Colony is themed like something from the West, or I'm sorry, the Wild West of you know American lore. And we get cut back and forth scenes where Tibolo is speaking to. Cosfall's, uh, I think like the principal of the school he's at, right? The headmaster. Oh, the headmaster. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the headmaster has problems with Cosfall. Like, I just want to hit this, this teacher, this headmaster, because his problem is not with his academic performance. It's not with the way he interacts with other students. It's just a feeling he has. He's like, his eyes bother me. <laughs> I'm like, fuck off, old man. Like, <laughs> that's not your job. I don't know. Maybe maybe this headmaster is a uh, a new type or whatever, right? Because he's not wrong. It's true. <laughs> yeah. His intuition is right, it seems. And we see, you know, an increasingly strong characterization from T. Bolo. Like, as much as I don't like who or what he is, his feelings for these children is real. Mm. He's like, what are you talking about? And he even storms out of the meeting and comes into the saloon yelling, he, he sits down and speaks to Artesia and Cosfall. The book that Cosfall is reading is Contact by Carl Sagan. Wow. Wow. Cosfall uh, leaves the conversation because he notices there's been someone in the saloon watching them, right? And Cosfall confronts this uh, stalker uh, who plays dumb, right? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, kid. I'm just here to have a beer and a hot dog. And he does look suspicious, but part of me was like, I don't know if this guy is actually following them or if he just looks suspicious. Like Artesia is trying to work through, has been for years trying to work through this trauma of her mother's death by applying herself to horse riding. Kosval is looking for outlets too. Mm-hmm. And he's just found one, which is physical violence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it will not be the last time he does this, but he is not listening to what the guy has to say, pushes the issue, assaults the guy first, and the uh, the stalker actually grabs a, a makeshift weapon and fails to do anything to Cosfall with it. But when Cosfall disarms him, he picks up the weapon. The only reason he doesn't strike the stalker is because Artesia yells out to him. Yeah. And, and she's kind of served that role before, right? So when he was in the, the mech tank or whatever it's called, yeah. gun tank, right. you know, it, it's her calling out. So she's kind of like acts as his conscience or yeah, she snaps like him out of it. And so he realizes, and I think makes a decision right then and there, I have to leave Artesia. Mm. So like his mother, he tells Artesia a lie to protect her. He promises her that he would never do it again. But this, oh my gosh. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. So this is the second most emotional scene for me in this episode. Yeah. So number one, like where the fuck are the adults, right? Uh, There's this teenager who's going to kill this guy. And it's the the little kid who stops him. She she does. But then she's freaking clinging to him. Mm Mm-hmm. Because her brother's disappearing. Yeah. This is this is my existential processing of this. Casval and Artesia come to the Texas colony, and that's where they die. The people who leave are Edward, 
and Selah. Hmm. It's like it's like they're, they're innocent. This is the death of their innocence. Like those identities stay in the ground with these. Oh, with their mother. They not only do they bury their relationship with their mother, but they're burying a part of themselves. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So again, it's uh, just another one of these powerfully emotional things that I feel like I can relate to, like someone who's just on a path and you know you can try to hold on, you can try to speak to them, but you can't and they're just going to go on their path. And that sucks. Mm-hmm. I saw it too as like that they kind of took everything that happened to them and then like turned kind of two different ways because I feel like obviously Caswell is turning towards not just justice, but like vengeance, revenge. And I don't know what happens to her in the future, but she seemed to turn that toward care. Like, you know, she's like caring for these refugees at the beginning of this. Oh, it makes sense. Um, Not to spoil things for people, but yeah, Artesia will definitely, or Sela Moss will definitely look for restorative or transformative justice. Mm -hmm. Whereas Kosval or or Edouard is, uh, yeah, stuck in that vengeance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something I also thought about this one was like, sometimes the way that we as humans tend to like take something legitimate, but then like expand it. So like he has this legitimate concern that they're being followed, that they're being watched, which they obviously were. Mm -hmm. But then because of that legitimate concern, he's looking at anyone who looks at them for too long is obviously working (laughs) for the zombies and is out to kill them. And he needs to get them first. I didn't think that guy was actually... And maybe he was. I guess it, they leave it kind he's of just suspicious looking, right? Yeah, he was yeah. suspicious looking, but at the same time, when they were insane, they never saw any of um, Caecilia's like goons that were following them. I don't think Caecilia hires people who can't fight very well and immediately get caught. Like she seems like somebody who <laughs> demands a higher level of output from her goons. So, like to me, I thought like this is also him just becoming suspicious of everybody. Yeah. Started mm-hmm. from a legitimate place, but is like now growing into something that kind of ruining his life. There it is. You just convinced me. I think the cowboy was innocent. <laughs> oh gosh. He just wanted a hot dog, man. Yeah, he really just uh, wanted a hot dog and beer, which of course <laughs> is what they would serve in a saloon in like a colony. <laughs> like, it's very I American. I thought it was so funny. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of, it, it's, so it's almost like PTSD or something, right? Where you're yes. taking these innocuous stimuli and then, you know, interpreting them as, as like threat and flashing back into that state of mind it's hard because it could be adaptive, right? Like that there is still this real risk out there, right? It's not like he was in war and now he's in the green zone. Like there is this kind of like maybe low probability, but ever present risk that, that their family is facing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We go back to the Osnabal household, right? And they're hosting Sela and Edward and uh, Tibolo for dinner. Um, and their son, Char, drops a bombshell. They had talked about Char and Edward going to the same school, but that can't happen because Char has taken the military entrance exam. And this really upsets Char's father, who is uh, vehemently anti-war, which again, seems like, like, yes, I'm anti-war too, but it seems like there's a conflict coming. And it does seem like the privilege of wealthy people to say, oh, well, I'm not going to pick a side. I'm against war in its totality. Mm. Obviously, there's a difference of opinion here. Char is actually really invigorated by the rhetoric surrounding this coming war. He even puts a time limit on it. He's like, I bet within five years we'll be at war. 
it, he talks about Zeon Zoom Daikun's theory. I thought this was a really, it was very quick, but I was thought it was a really interesting characterization of the political movement because the way he initially talks about it is the Federation is uh, exploiting or siphoning the labor, the value of that the colonies are producing, right? Because most food is produced on the colonies and sent back to Earth, actually. But the way he ends it is he says, and it's just like Giran Zabi says, who's already coded as a fascist, right? It's, uh, it's going to be Earthnoids against Spacenoids. And so just like the Nazi party, uh, we take these ideas that are socialist in nature of uh, exploitation and labor, and then we code them as a racial divide. Mm. People who are born on Earth are one way, and people who are born in space are another way, and they are at conflict, which is an oversimplification of what's actually happening. But as rhetoric goes, it draws clear lines of good guy and bad guy. Well, I, I really appreciate it being framed that way. Just oversimplifying things, especially in politics. Uh, it's mm -hmm. so dangerous. Don't you just love it when you go have a dinner with another family and it breaks out into a political <laughs> debate? It's so fun. <laughs> this, is like, this is like spending the night at your friend's house and then the parents are getting in a fight and you're like, oh my God, why am I here? Get me out of here. <laughs> it's so awful. You're just like stuck there. Uh, the other thing I thought was really interesting and telling in this scene was that the Texas colony, they're not at side three, uh, where Munzo Zeon is. Uh, and this kid, Char Asnabal, like he's obviously read Daikun and he's listening to at least the speeches of Giran Zabi. Uh, so it's, it's spreading throughout all the colonies. And young people are now joining the Zeon military from not just the Munzo, like Xeon colonies, but all over. And then it's like, dad is like disappointed in this, right? Like it's mm. like his kid is getting propagandized or co-opted or something. Right? Yeah. But so like, what if the dad understands like the political nuance? Like, hey, there's like, cause I'm one of them, right? Like I am a privileged person. I can see like there's corporate entities and like rich individuals that mm -hmm. care about profit. They don't care about human needs. They can shape policy, you know, whatever. And that's very messy, right? And it's complicated and has shades of gray. But this space noid, earth noid thing is like Alex, you were saying, that's just this simple thing. Well, yeah, it, it, it takes a political divide and turns it into a racial thing uh, about where you were born or what your parentage is more than what you actually do in life. That's still happening now, right? Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> Class consciousness has not emerged. Uh, uh, we are not on the same side. I mean, we are, but anyways. Uh, um, and, and you bring up a good point, like it is affecting the youth and uh, brings us into our last scene. The youth are the ones who are going to suffer the most. They are going to die. They are going to be exploited by people who do not have their best interests at heart. And we characterize this, we sum up this episode or really strongly because we focus one more time on Artesia, right? This episode was kind of a character study of her uh, with all the time we got to spend with her. Uh, it's even in the title, right? Artesia's Sorrow. Uh, we get one last scene where she is visiting their mother's grave. Maybe there's more to it, but the only thing I remember is that Caswell comes to tell her he's leaving. 
and it's this windy day. It's very dramatic. Uh, if it was raining, it might have been a bit much, but the wind does a lot for us. And they are both wearing the same style of coat. And as Kosval turns to leave and Artesia runs after him, she loses the coat in the wind. Symbolically, at least, that's it. That is the turning point. Her brother is gone. Her last bit of comfort and protection is gone. And she is alone in this world. She still has Tibolo, but everything else has been taken from her. The way he says goodbye, he doesn't hug her. He's gone. Like her brother's gone. Yep. Yeah. Uh, ugh. But uh, oh, uh, so I don't know if I'm reading too much into this or not. And you guys can tell me. But uh, Lucifer, the cat dies. The cat is black and white. And from the first episode, we had our archetypes of Daikun as this messianic figure and Lucifer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and like, so the cat's dead and it feels like, oh, this is the end of this black and white, good, evil. Mm. Oh. There's no fairy tale ending coming. Maybe there's no redemption arc coming. <laughs> you know? Like it has the biggest effect on Artesia because it's her cat but Mm -hmm. symbolically it has this effect on Kosval, right? There are no longer any deities watching over him. Mm -hmm. The only person that he's going to justify his actions to is himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely noted this episode, the bookends seem to be care and then lack of care for Artesia. Like at the beginning, Mm -hmm. he's like, oh, she has a fever. Like, let me volunteer. No one asked mm -hmm. him to do that. He's like, let me sit up with her all night. And, And then by the end, he can't even like, pause and give her a hug or reassure her or yeah i just thought that was like a very sad contrast yeah yeah Uh, and it really makes you feel like this this episode has been a journey right things have changed it has there are dynamics that are shifting uh which is good drama yeah i I do love the animation in that last scene like the way they animated the grass and the sunlight on it and stuff like that i I had another thought too I, i was thinking about the Lucifer thing too that we talked about last episode, like why is the cat named Lucifer? So this episode we have a guy named Don Tiablo. And so (laughs) Tiablo, like, you know, like, especially if you write it in Japanese, it'd be Tiablo, just like Diablo. And, you know, it's a character from Spain, right? So I feel like that has to be kind of intentional and so then it's like why are they naming these characters after the devil right these people that are very close to this main family i i'm not sure i'm not sure but i, I was wondering if it you know there there is this story of like kind of lucifer being the the angel that betrays god or or you know he wants independence for humanity and so that maybe it's not that Zion is a messiah figure and and like you know he's in contrast to lucifer or something like that but more that you know that this is this quest for independence from this kind of higher power or something mm. like that and that interesting it's more the the devil is the underdog or or something and i don't like i feel like my basis for this comes no, from like I'm, watching I'm the movie dogma <clears throat> so i like <laughs> I think, so even you know, uh, Astraea was named for one of the gods. Uh, so are we looking at like kind of a, a cosmic coming of age story? Yeah. Wow. So am I correct in presuming that Ben and Melissa, you, the two of you don't know where the story's going so far? 
I don't. Yeah, I don't. Can can I make a prediction though? Yeah, I was just going to ask you, just based on the journey so far, where do you see the story going? We know somehow that Casval is going to get Char's name, right? Yes. And we're like also kind of like, you know, he's getting like a little, he's getting sketchier and sketchier and he's like <laughs> leaving right at the same time. So my working theory right now is that he's like going to murder that dude and go to the military school in his place. I have watched ahead a couple episodes. Oh my gosh, you've given us so much already. And that is an, I love your prediction. I can't wait to uh, uh, see if that comes true, Ben. Um, <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> That's it? That's all uh, you're going to give me? Yeah, until next episode. Uh, I, right. fe- I feel that was very like WandaVision where... Um, <laughs> Alex was just like, I can't wait to see where that goes. Is this the bottom point of the arc? Is this going to be the saddest (laughs) one? Is that too much of a spoiler? Uh, No comment. Uh, On a a personal (laughs) level, uh, yeah, that may be. Yeah, I guess that's it. Oh, and um, before we let you go, uh, uh, Melissa, we like to give out recommendations to the audience. uh, If Yeah, anime recommendations. I mean, I already shared a couple that I really like, um, but I was thinking Dragon about, <laughs> yes, um, ones that are more like Gundam. And again, like one of the things that I think is so compelling about Gundam is like how messy everybody is and like the political situation is. So if you like that kind of stuff, one that I like is called Golden Kamui, which is kind of, there's like a mystery that you're figuring out, but also like most of the characters are very complicated and like not necessarily people, you know, they're like murderers and stuff, but then you find yourself like rooting for them. Is that like another mech sci-fi show? No, no, no. That's like um, set in Japan. It's like the political machinations are obviously like are are much more local than like space noids and earth noids. Like it's more localized um, in Hokkaido. Maybe like, in the early 1900s, mm. I think it's really interesting. And it's also very interesting from a cultural perspective because the main relationship is between um, a Japanese person and like an indigenous person in Japan oh. and kind of how different their cultures are and them like kind of forging this bond across their differences. Oh, how cool. And just to make sure I have the right thing, it's Golden Kamui, K-A-M-U-Y. Yeah. Any awesome. causes or... Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Nothing like that. I I do like. I don't have any like uh, books to plug or podcasts to plug of my own. But as I was thinking about like what we were talking about today, like one of the things that I've been working on personally in my own life is bringing more like nuance into political conversations. So one of the things that's really helped me with that is a podcast and a community called Pantsuit Politics. Basically, their whole idea is to be able to have conversations with people who disagree with you politically in a way that recognizes each other's humanity and that is about understanding each other and finding the shared values and like just understanding that we're all we are all needed to work towards a solution that works for everybody um, and that we can't sort of opt out of those political conversations so so the asnable family should have been tuning in (laughs) yeah would have changed everything it it really would have yeah um that's something that has really helped me with just being able to talk about really hard topics and really complex problems that we're facing as a nation and as a world awesome pantsuit politics all right are we good yeah all right pen pen pals 
Hi, this is Brian again with another offer for listeners of the Pen Pen Pals podcast. December 7th, 2020 saw COVID-19 replace cancer and heart disease as the number one killer of the United States. If you would like help to process grief and loss, please email me at brian at lifejutsu.com. The first session is free. Use promo code PENPEN for a special discount. Thanks for listening.